1: It's Thursday, September 25th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A second San Diego snake was seized. Yes, a second snake was seized. Snatched off the shoulder of a snoozing, possibly soused, San Diegan. Here's the backstory. A pedicab driver was discovered unconscious with a snake around his neck in San Diego's gas lamp quarter Tuesday. As they approached him, he climbed into his pedicab and tried to cycle away backwards, police said. Perhaps he should have tried to serpentine. Travis Elsner Young, so named as to shame two families, was arrested then. The ball python he had with him was removed, found to be suffering from anemia, dehydration, and starvation. Following an investigation, the reptile owner was revealed to be a recidivist and was relieved of a boa constrictor. The snake owner is still in custody. The snakes are said to be in stable but slithering condition. On today's show, in the spiel, I will give you the news of the world from places that are horrible, but I'll give you the less than horrible news. Not uplifting, just more mockable. And we'll talk about the fade. Yeah, it's gone out of music. But first, threats. They're so much more prevalent. How should we think about them? Within the past week, two different kinds of threats made news. One was the White House fence hopper. Well, maybe that's too benign because we're talking about a seemingly deranged veteran who made it inside the White House, armed with only a pocket knife, but with a history of disturbing behavior and 800 rounds of ammunition in his car. Then there was Emma Watson. She delivered a well-received speech about women's rights at the UN. And then some... Nasty and brutish people threatened her with physical violence, with sexual assault, with the threat of publication of nude photos of her that may not even exist. These two threats are seen as different in nature, but are they? And what's the right way to think about or deal with threats? So joining me now is University of Maryland professor of law, Danielle Citron. She's the author of Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Hello.
0: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: Do you think that these two threats are different or more similar than they're even being given credit for?
0: Let's take the threat of imminent physical violence of the person jumping over the the fence and then right at the heels of the White House. And so the threat there is imminent, right? And so it's physicalized and in someone's face. But what happens when it's online, it can be even more frightening because you don't know who the source is.
1: Right. Now, I don't disagree with you at all. But uh, in fact, I would like to see if online threats were to be taken more seriously. It seems that the police sometimes don't even understand what social media is. You hear reports about that. They maybe say, oh, it's so hard to catch these people. Do they really put effort into it? But it does seem to me that the age-old, the, the pre-internet kind of threats were really quite prevalent, but just not talked about that much. Anyone who knows, I mean, I predate the internet in terms of media, and all the hosts of the radio stations I used to work for would always get death threats. And those were always passed along to the local police, or there was a uh, security person within the radio station who knew how to deal with them. But it's not something something... something you'd ever talk about or ever publicize. But now they're talked about what's the benefits of being so public with death threats and what are the drawbacks? I
0: think the benefits is that we're starting to seep into our consciousness about how they are, in fact, terrifying for people. So when you get a graphic rape threat, let's say it's an an email sent to you anonymously, you know the recipient of that email because they have no idea who it's from. And Depending on how graphic and how detailed it is, it's terrifying.
1: Well, as a victim, anyone who receives a threat, because, again, let's go back to the uh, 1990s or beyond or earlier, you know, Walter Cronkite, Peter Jennings, almost every elected official, they got threats. One would say, well, as a public figure, this is uh, part of the game. Now, with social media, everyone's sort of a public figure, but it's very hard for the average civilian or the average, you know, quasi public person who maybe writes something on online and uh, is inundated with these death threats to think of themselves like a network uh, newsman from 1974.
0: Right. And so when some, let's say the president is threatened, we take that seriously. There's, the FBI is all over it. And, and I think it's probably true of U.S. senators, of anyone of, pro, you know, public prominence. But when it comes to the sort of ordinary person who's targeted online, and then when you Google them, you can see all of these threats, you know, saturating Google searches of their names. It has an impact on their lives that may not even just be the fear that they experience. But also, of course, when people Google them, they think, "Ah, I don't want to hire that person if they're sort of struggling with that, or why would someone go after them? Maybe I should think twice about dealing with them or hiring them or dating them, right? It's true that in the past we might say it was really sort of a normal thing for someone who's a public personality Mm -hmm. to be threatened, but I actually don't think we didn't take it seriously. I think we do or have. And the problem today is with their prevalence and often layer on the fact that so many of these threats, if they're made to women, we just dismiss them because we think, ah, no big deal, boys will be boys, turn your computer off. But, you know, for the victim, it's, it's as serious as any other kind of threat.
1: Uh, last year on Slate, Jim Pagels wrote an article titled Death Threats on Twitter Are Meaningless, You Should Ignore Them. What's wrong with that?
0: And, you know, I think for someone who is capable of ignoring them, and who feels like they have enough security in their lives and they're not worried about it—that is one thing, right? So I'm not saying you shouldn't. If that's that person's attitude, God bless. But I talk to so many victims who, when you receive an anonymous email or sort of anonymous or pseudonymous comments on your blog that are graphic—you know, how someone's going to violate you and they know where you live and they say so—it's terrifying.
1: Are our laws adequate to deal with the deluge of threats that social media allows, or is the fault mostly in the laws are fine, it's just law enforcement choosing not to enforce them?
0: Right. So I think it's the second. I think we have laws on the books that address threats very clearly, and assault laws that you know, address, you know, that cover the same stuff, but the problem is law enforcement just ignores it. So there really is a problem of under-enforcement of existing law, which is solid.
1: And what about someone who, you know, uses the 4chan message board or sets up a website kind of threatening, we're going to post naked pictures about you? I don't think law enforcement would think that that's worth their resources to go after. Do you think they should think that?
0: Well, you know, I don't think that... So let's just assume that some of those threats were real and they weren't that like viral marketing company, which mm-hmm. doesn't make it any less real for, let's say, Emma Watson, right, yeah. who, who reads it and says, holy cow, like, if I keep speaking about feminism my nude photos are going to be released, or Anita Sarkeesian, the same thing. If I keep trying to make documentaries about sexism in video games, I'm going to have be hit with DDoS attacks and rape threats. So an extortionate threat that is a threat that's designed to get you to do something, either to pay money or to stop doing your job or your work, it's a real threat. So I think law enforcement, to the extent that these, we think these things are genuine, that they're causing people to stop doing what they want to do or to pay money, we should enforce those laws, I unfortunately think, you know, either we're, we are ignoring them because we don't get the tech, you know, from the law enforcement perspective, or we just don't take it seriously.
1: Danielle Citron and, is a professor of law at the University of Maryland. She is the author of Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. you're going to write a song for me. And as was the case back in the day, the way the song ended was to fade away. Almost every song would fade away. So prevalent was the fade out that even this Buddy Holly song called Not Fade Away ended this way. But now the fade has gone the way of Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper themselves. It's gone. Over the last four years, one big hit, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, had a fade out. Otherwise, all of every year's top ten hits have ended with a bang, or a downbeat, or even a whimper, but not a whisper. Joining me now is William Weir, who wrote about this phenomenon in Slate in an article called The Sad Gradual Decline of the Fade Out in Popular Music. Hello, William. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. Was the original prevalence of the fade-out a decision or the lack of a decision?
2: I think it started because people really liked the effect at first, uh, the same way that people really liked reverb or guitar solos, and then things got maybe a little bit out of hand, in which it just became the default choice to use. In the 1950s, it, it really started taking off. I mean, there are a few examples of it in pop music in the 1940s, but by 19 19- 85 it kind of really reached its peak every song a year end top 10 was was a fade out
1: yeah and there are some songs where it works well but there are some songs that it almost seems to be well more than illogical like forced upon the song i mean Uh, A song that relies on a blues riff, right? You take almost every Rolling Stones song. Well, the blues has been played live for 100 years before recorded music, and they know how to end their songs, and no one ever complained that, you know, a Howlin' Wolf song didn't end well. But, of course, when you put it on vinyl and the year was 1970-whatever or 1980-whatever, there was going to be a fade at the end of that song.
2: True. I mean, and part of that might be just new commercial needs uh, in order to fit it onto the, the limitations of a, of a vinyl single or into the radio format.
1: So, when you talk to engineers today or people who make music today, do they even realize that the fade out is out? Or when you point out to them, as you did with this article, actually there hasn't been a huge song other than Blurred Lines. Do they kind of say, "Really? I didn't realize that."
2: The ones that I had spoken to were, were sort of semi-conscious of it. They also said that they hadn't really thought about it that much, and. Uh, once you know, he hadn't thought about it until as much as, as he had until, until the interview. He said it's like a lot of other studio effects. They come in, they come out of, out of style. Gated reverb on drums, for instance.
1: Yeah. And so maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing it so little now is that we saw it so much then, like in 1985, when, what was it, every song in the top ten faded yes. out? Yes. So what were some of
2: those songs? I want to know what love is, Foreigner. That was a pretty good bait out. Obviously. Sure, had that, that great gospel chorus and exactly. shouting. Careless Whisper was another one.
1: If the song says whisper, you could fade into a whisper. Right. No, yeah. No shame in that. Okay, so let's take Paul McCartney. You know, when he does Hey Jude live, he's gonna have to end. Like you, like you, like you, like you. What do you prefer, the long fade of, of the studio recording or how he would do it live?
2: I think in this case probably the studio version because I think it really did play out in the way, classic way, that a good fade-out does. Here's a good example. Like, I mean, why, why I think a good fade-out will work sometimes. At the University of Hanover, they did the study uh, in which they had... Subjects listened to two versions of the same song. Mm-hmm. One version, it ended with a cold ending. The other version it was a fade-out. And they had them tap along to the beat for, for each each one. When they were listening to the one with a cold ending, they would stop tapping pretty much right on the, the end of the song. When they listened to the fade-out version of the song, they would continue tapping for a little more than a second after the song was completely over. So even in complete silence, they were still tapping because in, the, in their head, the song was still going on, which creates this whole fascinating notion that the song goes beyond its own physical self goes on forever.
1: And Hey Jude does. I mean, that's the effect in concert. You know, everyone's singing it or the U2 song 40. There are a lot of bands have songs that are meant to be sing-along songs that maybe if all works out well, you keep singing them into the parking lot. You know, I think maybe Arcade Fire ends with Wake Up, something like that. Um, I heard Robert Siegel talking to you, and he had a theory, advanced a theory, that in the days of radio DJs, the DJs would talk over the fade-out. And so now that so much of our music is no longer mediated by DJs, since we're listening on Pandora or Spotify or just whatever we put on our iPhones, maybe fade-outs are no longer uh, as necessary. I think that could be a theory. Is there anything else to, to the way we listen to music now, as opposed to hearing it over the radio as brought to you by a DJ, that would uh, lead you to think that fade-outs, or that would be an explanation for the death of the fade-out?
2: Oh sure, I mean, part of it could just be your own, you know, uh, uh, diminishing attention spans. Once you know, something is peaked, you, you want to move move right on. Um, why why wait out those last few few dwindling seconds when you can just you press the button on your iPod um, or the DJ can just move you know, cross cut right to the next next song.
1: All right, what's your favorite fade out moment?
2: Uh, I, I I do like uh, life life during wartime because it, it did create this, this question in my my head. You know, well. Because he's, he, you know, he, he's singing his whole new verse as it's fading out.
1: Oh, what, City, out planets, it what,
2: what, are, what are all these other other lyrics that are going on? And Forrest Whitman, the editor of the piece, pointed out to me that there was a, an alternate version uh, that came out with a re, the, the remastered version in 2005 where they, they did, you actually do hear the, the, the uh, remaining lyrics are and on one hand it was great because it you know satisfied a long long curiosity i had but it's, on the other hand you know, didn't really live up to the possibility of what, what it could have been these great you know, incredibly profound lyrics
1: yeah well we got to figure david Byrne is a good enough uh editor that he knows to put the good lyrics in the song that everyone hears <laughs> and the, exactly uh, yeah yeah and uh hold out the promise of amazing lyrics but just leave it at that a promise right All right, well, I want to end this interview emphatically, not even with a period, but an exclamation mark, as I say. William, we are the author of the sad, gradual decline of the fade-out in popular music. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. There is so much trouble in the world... So many flashpoints and hot spots, you might need a break. This is why people here in the United States retreat to the escapism of TV shows like Gotham, or to reassuring tributes to Yankee captain Derek Jeter, or they take comfort in the porpoiseine whistles of Hope and Winter, the main characters in Dolphin Tale 2, mildly entertaining audiences nationwide, according to box office receipts. But I will not retreat from the war zones to bring you news meant to amuse. No, I will plow straight in like a militarized Mr. Magoo as I go spanning the globe for wild worldwide war zone wackiness. Three supposed jihadis had every intention to become former jihadis or at least latent rather than active jihadis. They left Syria, they flew through Turkey, and their intention was to turn themselves in to French authorities in Paris. But like so many of us who have flown U.S. Air, missed a connection in Pittsburgh, and then had to rent a car, their plane showed up at a wrong airport, Marseille. So they go through customs, and possibly after it was ascertained they weren't trying to carry plant life into the country, they were allowed to leave. They were freed. The computer system that should have flagged them was not working. Quote, the database was down in Marseille, the French defense minister said. Continuing, It is sometimes down in Marseille, thus alerting all future jihadis which airport to check into. But repentant jihadis, though they were, the men were good enough to turn themselves back in. Why can't the insatiable evil that the United States encounters be so damn compliant? The three are now in custody, and French authorities are trying to figure out who's to blame, and which part will be played by a non Gerard de Depardieu in an upcoming film. Next to Canada, well, almost into Canada, the Rainbow Bridge, connecting the U.S. and Canada. Quick diversion, when my dog died, the crematorium, which is much less delicious than it sounds, sent me a poem along with his ashes, and that poem is called The Rainbow Bridge. I speak of a land of meadows, hills and valleys, with lush green grass. When a beloved pet dies, the pet goes to this place. Those old and frail animals are young again. Those who have been maimed are named whole again. Well, it wasn't a dead Lhasa Apso, but three very much alive Afghan army officers who were found at the Rainbow Bridge connecting the U.S. and Canada. They were in the U.S. for training exercises and wandered off. They slipped away from their U.S. hosts at a mall, spent some time at Zachary's Pub, which has lobsters, $4 beers, and strippers, and then tried to sneak into Canada. They were spotted because no one has ever left a place with lobsters, $4 beers, and strippers to try to go to Canada. For the three, their training is over. It was apparently unsuccessful. The only terrorists they're qualified to apprehend are the kinds of jihadis who force capture upon themselves. Quite a prevalent phenomenon in France. Dateline Donetsk, where international observers oversaw a prisoner exchange between Ukraine fighters and captives of pro-Russian rebels. There are plenty of captured Ukrainians available. The Russians have been routing their rivals and taking captives, but the Ukrainians have been a little less successful. Their methods, codenamed... Is it Marseille or Marseille? Marseille, yeah. Their methods, codenamed Marseille Airport Security-esque Tactical Operations Strike Force Cobra, not a success. So the Russians have all these Ukrainians, like tons of Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians, they're a little light on Russians. They don't have real Russian fighters. So they kind of round up anyone who's pro-Russia, or maybe a teenager who's a petty criminal. I steal ham. I just steal ham. I am not prisoner of war. I know like Russia. I like ham. Now the Ukrainian guy who orchestrated this deal, he seems to be a real major manipulator. Actually, he's a actually he's a colonel general, a rank the US doesn't have. His name is Vladimir Rubin. Here's how he's described in Foreign Policy Magazine. Rubin, the only professional prisoner exchange negotiator in Ukraine is a silent, calculating man whose true emotions remain constantly hidden behind his unsmiling exterior and he is tight-lipped about his past. Maybe he's also tight-lipped that he's swapping soldiers for squeegee men. Well played, sir. He's also helped by the woman heard here. She is pop singer Ruslana. She won the Eurovision Song Contest in 2004. She's Ukrainian, but the Russians seem to respect her. Quote, Popularity and charm have nonetheless allowed her to find common ground with the rebels as she's traveled with Ruban to negotiate releases over the past three weeks. Ruban says the rebels respect her courage for coming into enemy territory. So imagine the U.S. fought a war with Canada and Celine Dion negotiated prisoner exchanges, even if the swap was a bona fide U.S. soldier for, say, a low level, non threatening, hapless Canadian ne'er do well. A Rob Ford type. Well, if that does happen, old war-wide, war-zone wackiness. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist. She was briefly detained for operating a jet ski in the company of koalas. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate podcasts, furiously yelled, Go, go, gadget legs, as he climbed into the pouch of an ill-tempered kangaroo once the fuzz closed in on him. You can listen to us in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're also on Yo. You get the app. You subscribe to Podcast. That's the word. And then when the show's ready, we'll yo you. Another way to find out that the show's ready, we'll send you an email. And you can play the show right off the email. Sign up for that service. Go to slate.com slash gist. Email. Facebook.com slash gist is our Facebook page. Our Twitter feed is Gist. You can email us at slate.com. Please, please help me out. If you ever see me stumbling around bleary-eyed in the Faneuil Hall area offering to give you a shoulder ride to Cambridge, please talk me out of it and promise to provide a nice and loving home to the yaks who served me their fermented milk in the first place. Thanks for listening.